The text this morning is taken from multiple places, three places, Genesis 1.21, Isaiah 27.1, and, and Psalm 74, 12-14. These are the words of God. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then from Isaiah 27, in that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Then from Psalm 74, for God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Thou didst divide the sea by thy strength. Thou breakest the heads of the dragons in the waters. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Our Father and our gracious God, we thank you for your goodness to us in gathering us together like this. I pray that we, we would be receptive to your word, not because we have decided to be that way, but because your spirit has softened our hearts. Please teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this message is entitled Christ and the Gods of Chaos or Christ and the Monsters of Chaos. Uh, I titled it that to, to ensure the attention of all the 10-year-old boys. So, <laughs> the mon a monster sermon. So we have a topical sermon on sea dragons. So, well, this is because we do not pay enough attention to foundational myths. This is the case both with the fanciful myths of the unbelievers and the genuine myths that are recorded for us in Scripture. While many myths are false, and Scripture does treat the word myth in that way, with myths being described as pernicious, false, and unedifying, we see Scripture writers in 1 Timothy 1, 4, 4, 7, 2 Timothy 4, 4, Titus 1, 14, 2 Peter 1, 16. You read those passages and you'll conclude that the apostles took a dim view of myths, as they do. Old wives' tales, uh, crazy talk. We need to reject that kind of myth. But nevertheless, the phrase true myth is not oxymoronic. The phrase true myth is not oxymoronic. Scripture does refer to certain stories as bearing the truth to us, telling us the truth, with those stories being readily dismissed by unbelievers as legendary or mythological. Think of Balaam's ass or the creation account or the star of Bethlehem. Well, here's another set that we're going to be addressing. We, we sometimes forget how marvelous the world actually is. And if you uh, imagine, imagine, for example, being the first zoologist who came across the duck-billed platypus. Very first guy. Never, nobody's ever heard of it before. You've got to go back to England and ruin your career. <laughs> because you're going to talk to them about a mammal that lays eggs and it has a duck-bill. Right, so you're going to go back and tell them about this strange creature that you found. Or pretend that nobody has ever seen a crocodile. Nobody's ever seen a huge crocodile, and then we come across one. What would we call that? Well, that's a monster, right? That's a monster. We would call it that. And we, the ones that are around, we don't call that because we're, a, we're used to them. We're accustomed to them. Oh, I read about them in a book. But if, if we had not read about them in a book and they were just the latest thing that we ran into, we would say, oh, a dinosaur or, or a dragon. This is, this is really something. We get accustomed to things too quickly. One time I was, um, years ago, I was 
touring with Christopher Hitchens and we wound up on the Joy Behar show and they were yucking, um, they were yucking it up, the unbelievers were yucking it up, the Bible, ho, 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 the Bible has Balaam's ass, Balaam's donkey talking, an animal talking, ho, 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 and I said, but we're animals and we talk. And it was, like, it was like they walked into a pole. Like, what, 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 what? Oh, we talk, right? We're t- you're talking right now. So, and, and then th- here's another thing. You Christians are out of your minds because you believe in the resurrection of the dead. You believe that a dead man can come to life. Well, you believe that too. You believe that inorganic matter turned into organic matter all by itself, by accident. You believe that that happened by accident. You believe that life came from death one time. You just believe that it's absurd to believe that it could happen twice with an intelligent, loving father overseeing the process. You think it's got to happen by blind chance, but only once. So what what we want to do is recognize that as Christians, we want to be apologetic for nothing in Scripture. Right? If, if someone says, well, that's a fanciful story, or that's a crazy story, or that's clearly a myth, well, there are crazy stories that the Bible rejects as mythological uh, old wives' tales, but there are also things that the Bible tells us very plainly are true, and we need to accept it as the Word of God and, and not be embarrassed by anything in Scripture. And one of the things that we're going to discover when we're not embarrassed by anything in Scripture, like these passages here, is there's a great deal of wisdom here for us. In Scripture, the great dragons of the deep were creatures. They were created by God. The great dragons of the deep were creatures, and they were formed on the fifth day, uh, as it says in the text that I read from Genesis 1. They were created on the fifth day. They are called tannanim, tannanim, sea monsters, or great sea dragons. Now, the reason I read, uh, when I read the text, I read, uh, Genesis 1:21 from the New King James and not the King James because the, the King James rendered it as whales and the word tananim does not refer to whales. It's, it's referring to great sea dragons. Not only so, but when God created uh, these great sea creatures, he did it just for fun. He did it for fun. Psalm 104, verse 26. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. Right? Why, why did God create Leviathan? Because he wanted to see them out there horsing around. Right? That's what he wanted. He made them to play therein. But when, the, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, rebelled against God and the human race fell, remember that man was given uh, charge of all the animals. Man was given authority over everything, which meant that when he fell... When Adam rebelled against God, the whole created order was dislocated with it. Everything fell. So Adam was over all things, and then when Adam rebelled, the whole created order fell, as we see in Romans chapter 8. So in a fallen creation, these sea monsters soon enough grew to become symbols of great wickedness and insolent pride, usually associated with Egypt. When these passages come up in Scripture, generally there's a connection being made with the power of Egypt. And this is how and why God is described as conquering or defeating them. The exaltation of God's victory over Leviathan in both Isaiah and Psalms is a triumph over Pharaoh. It's a triumph over Pharaoh. And in a related example, there was another great sea monster named Rahab. 
And so God describes the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of Egypt in terms that are reminiscent of Jehovah's conquest of that great sea dragon. Isaiah 51, 9 and 10. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days and the generations of old. Art thou not it... uh, Art thou not it that hath cut Rahab and wounded the dragon? Art thou not it which hath dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, and that hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransomed to pass over? So clearly it's talking here about the Exodus. It's talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. And the crossing of the Red Sea is being described as God triumphing over Rahab the dragon, triumphing over Rahab the sea dragon. Now, there's several ways you could go with this. The defeat of these sea dragons might be symbolic, uh, a symbolic description of God dealing with Egypt decisively, and Egypt is being described with the metaphor of a sea dragon. Or perhaps there was a primal battle between Jehovah and the sea creatures earlier that's being taken as an image for describing what he did to Egypt also. So at some point in the past, there was a battle between these creatures and Jehovah. Jehovah defeated them, and then that Then when he defeated the bad guys again in the crossing of the Red Sea, that called up the memory of this earlier battle. But either way, either way, when Job curses the day of his birth, he calls upon those. When Job says, I wish someone would go back in time and undo everything, unhinge the world. I I wish they would make it all go differently. He's cursing the day of his birth. He calls upon those capable of rousing Leviathan which would unhinge everything, as being the ones who have the capacity to unravel everything. So when, uh, and this is a standard stock motif in literature, movies, whatnot, you know, scientists are messing around with radioactive stuff that they shouldn't be messing around with, and it blows up, and then a monster comes out of the water and eats Tokyo, right? So it's all in the scripture. (laughs) The structure is in the scriptures. Right, and I'm not telling you. So never mind. All right. So what you have is this uh, archetype of people sinning, people disobeying, people messing with things they shouldn't mess with, and then they unleash terrible uh, consequences. They unleash terrible consequences. And Job, in this moment of cursing, is wishing. He says, "Let those who curse it curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan." That's in Job 3, 8. So what Job is saying is, I wish, the, I, I wish we could curse the day of my birth. I wish he's speaking in frustration. And the people who are going to do that are the people who could rouse Leviathan. And then when Leviathan is roused, it's disaster in every direction. And this is not just some ancient old covenant thing. Remember the red dragon with seven heads in Revelation and which pursued the woman with turbulent floodwaters in Revelation 12, 3 and 4, and Revelation 12, verse 15. So what if these are mythic stories, but I'm talking about the truth in these mythic stories, what is that truth? What is being described for us? In order to understand all of this more fully, we have to grasp the fundamental contrast between the believing and the unbelieving mind at this point. For the believer... God is the ultimate and personal starting point. An ultimate, infinite, personal God is the ultimate starting point, the only possible starting point. 
For the unbeliever, the foundation is chaos. For the unbeliever, the foundation is chaos. Everything begins for him. Everything begins with chaos and threatens to return to chaos. Things may appear to be orderly around you, but chaos lies under your feet and it is chaos all the way down. Now, this is the case with the ancient pagans who thought in, in explicitly polytheistic and uh, polytheistic pagan terms, but it's also true of the modern materialist, the Darwinist, who believes that there's nothing but matter banging around, nothing but atoms banging around, and by chance, these atoms spit up uh, life. And, and everything that life is doing is purely accidental, blind chance, groping its way forward. The whole thing is chaotic under our feet. Chaos, one, one day chaos gives birth to life, for example. So this is the choice you have. An infinite personal God, who's the starting point of everything that exists for us, and chaos as the starting point. So consider the contrast. The scriptural account begins with God speaking. God speaks, and as a result, there is an earth that is formless and void. And then God shaped it according to his good purposes. So God speaks. God, the infinite personal triune God, holy, 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 is the God who's the, he's the everlasting God. Then he speaks, and an inchoate mass comes into existence. Matter comes into existence, but it's formless and void. And then God speaks and shapes it according to an exquisite design. So you, everywhere you look, there's design, whether it's a butterfly's wing or the engineering of an ankle, or you look at this, uh, the possibility, you know, look at the, uh, uh, an eclipse of the sun by the moon. It's like you're stacking a couple of quarters, one quarter on top of another. They fit perfectly. Right? This one, these are signs to rule the night and the day. So God speaks, and he orders that he speaks, and then there is formless and void matter, and then he shapes it. Okay? So the unbelievers do not begin with the word, the word that was with God, the word was God, and so they must, in some manner, begin with the chaos. All right? They must begin with the chaos. In the ancient pagan myths, as in the Babylonian myth, the Enuma Elish, it begins with water, and long story short, Marduk kills Tiamat, the watery goddess, and creates heaven and earth out of her carcass. Then man is created to help the gods keep order and to keep chaos at bay. All right? So chaos, th think of chaos threatening to erupt at any moment, and the gods suppress chaos, and then create man to help them suppress chaos. So here are your choices. On the outline, number one, inf infinite personal God. Then he creates m matter, formless and void. And the Hebrew is tohu wa bohu, formless and void. That word tohu is going to come back. And then an ordered cosmos, an ordered cosmos. So infinite personal God, then tohu wa bohu, and then an ordered chaos, uh, ordered cosmos, excuse me. In fact, the word cosmos is related to the word for cosmetics. So the word cosmos means to put in order, to put in order, which is what you're doing with your cosmetics, right? Well, you should be trying to anyway. So uh, cosmetics help you put your face in order. The cosmos is the material 
uh, matter that was created, ordered and fashioned exquisitely. exquisitely. Then the second option would be the pagan option, which is chaos giving birth to apparent order and design. And then you've got the ever-present threat or option of lapsing back. Right? So you've got chaos that's constantly churning under your feet. Then there's this semblance of order now, and then it can all regress. Those are the two basic options. So for the unbeliever, chaos is chapter one. For the unbeliever, chaos is chapter one. For the believer, God is chapter one, and chaos is chapter two. Chaos comes later. God is chapter one. He just fashions a lump of clay that he's going to make the pot out of, right? So he, God has a purpose and a design. He creates the lump of creation, and then he fashions it in chapter 3. And, because, and when God creates tohu wabohu, this inchoate matter, because he has an intention for it, because it's in the palm of his hand, it's not really chaos. It's raw material, right? It's supplies, so you, those are the two options. God, formless and void, then an ordered cosmos, and then for the unbelieving mind, chaos, apparent order and design, but it's not really designed, it's not really ordered, it just looks, it just looks that way, and it could always lapse back. So then, in the biblical view of the world, we have to consider whether this, the world as it presents itself to us is a structural defect or is the result this way, the problems that we see are the result of rebellion. In the biblical view of the world, when God created all things, he pronounced all of them good. He pronounced all of them good, including the Tananim, including those sea creatures, those great monsters. Genesis 1-4, 1-10, 1-12, 1-18, 1 and 1 It is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Everything is good. This would include the sea dragons of the fifth day. Nothing whatever was wrong with them. But after the rebellion of man, after we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the whole created order crashed with us. We were in charge of it. We were given uh, vicegerency over the, the whole thing. And then when we rebelled, we crashed the whole thing. So man was the driver Creation was the car, and we crashed it into a tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We, we wrecked the whole thing. This is why the whole creation groans, looking forward to the day when the sons of God are to be revealed. So God, when God sent Christ to become one of us, to live a perfect life, die on the cross, be buried, rise again from the dead, and he does this so that he might bring many sons to glory, he is establishing a new way of being human. Jesus Christ is a new Adam, and a new Adam means a new human race. And so when this new human race is finally revealed at the last day, then the whole created order is going to be restored. The, the, The creation itself is groaning, longing, looking forward to that day. And if you read through uh, Romans chapter 8 with this in mind, you'll uh, you'll see many indications of this. But some parts of this crashed creation became identified with the Great Rebellion. Some aspects of the, of the crash became, went over to the other side, became identified with the rebellion. 
For example, it's hard to imagine packs of hyenas roaming the outskirts of Eden. Maybe you can do it. I can't imagine that. So it's important for us to distinguish two visions. For the Christian, the problem is sin. The problem with this world is ethical. The problem with this world is ethical, it's rebellion, it's sin, and the solution is the gospel and right worship. That's the solution. Civilization is fragile, but civilization is fragile because of the sinful heart of man. Man's sin, man's rebellion is the central problem. But for the unbeliever, civilization is also fragile, but it is fragile because of the underlying chaos. It's a structural defect. It's a defect by definition. The, this whole thing is built on chaos. Chaos is the foundation. In addition, because the unbeliever has no ultimate standard of order, his only hope when things get intolerable, according to his lights, is to drive it all back down into the shambolic chaos again with the desire that we might get luckier next time. The, the next glob that chaos spits out of its seething lake of mag magma might be an improvement. So we get sick and tired of all this stupid that's going around. And so the, the pagan hope, this is, this is how all revolutionaries think. They believe that if they drive this thing down into chaos again, if they reduce it to shambles again, then order, uh, a better order might spring out by chance, by accident again. Such pagan religion is driven by a gambler's hope. And they've not stopped to consider that they have no standard by which to evaluate words like improvement. So I want you to understand something, and this is all, I want you to see how practical this is for understanding the world around you. The rage that you, that you saw in the streets over the course of this last year, the rage that you continue to see as people are trying to tear everything down, is born of this. This is where it comes from. This is what chaotic religion has to do. It's what it must do. It's where it goes, it goes to of necessity. The rage that you see in the streets wanting to bur burn it all down senselessly is driven by this vain delusion. This is essential paganism. This is paganism 101. In Av the, the ancient pagan poet Ovid in his book Metamorphoses. This is how he begins, the first, first chapter. I read from Genesis chapter 1. Here's paganism chapter 1. Before there was earth or sea or the sky that covers everything, nature appeared the same throughout the whole world, what we call chaos, a raw, confused mass, <coughs> excuse me, nothing but inert matter, Badly combined, discordant atoms of things confused in the one place. Nothing but chaos. In the beginning, for the Christian, in the beginning was the word for the pagan. In the beginning was chaos. And you look like your father. You look like where you came from. All right? Christians want to live ordered lives because we serve the God of order. The pagan has to, at some fundamental express some fundamental level express his allegiance to chaos so let's consider how this works out practically how does it relate to the choices that you make in the course of your day-to-day -day decision making according to the gospel the problematic issue 
is what man did in his rebellion. Like I said a moment ago, ethical, not, uh, not structural. It's not in the nature of things. It's in the nature of our rebellion. The, problem, the problematic issue is not the very nature of the created order itself. And I want to urge you to remember that this is why our worship is so important. This is why our worship is so important. In Isaiah 45, verse 18, it says this, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, notice we're talking about the creator God, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He hath established it. He created it not in vain, literally, not to be tohu. Remember back in Genesis 1, the earth was formless and void, tohu wabohu. God did not create it to be tohu. He did not create it to be chaos. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. This is our home. This is something God made for us. We're supposed to live here. We're not supposed to foul our own nest. We're not supposed to think that we're just here by accident, by some freak of chaotic nature, and then burn it all down in the hope that somehow the next iteration will somehow be an improvement. God created this world for us to dwell in, and he wants us to dwell in it in such a way that we make it more and more orderly, and given the fact of the rebellion and the, and the fractures and the fissures and the problems that have appeared in the created order, he wants his redeemed children to worship him in such a way as to repair the world. This is our job. 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. We want nothing to do with those who walk disorderly. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and 7, also verse 11. And then Colossians 2, 5. For the, and this is, a, this is a crucial verse, actually. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. Colossians 2, 5. Paul's not with the Colossians, but he, he heard reports about their worship. He heard reports about their gathering. And when they came together, it was orderly. And it rejoiced Paul's heart that it was orderly, joying and beholding your order. Now, the word order there in Colossians is toxis, and it was a military term. Think regimentation. If you wanted a, a, a term in English that would be uh, some, somewhat like toxic, think regimentation. Christian worship should be disciplined, focused, intentional, trained, and powerful. All right, not, now, you can have, there's certain kinds of order. There's, there's one kind of order that's simply a dead order. You could have a row of porcelain figurines on a shelf that nobody's dusted for 20 years, and that's orderly. You know, they're sitting there, it's orderly, but it's orderly, dusty, and dead. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not the toxis. That's not the regimentation that he rejoices to hear about. If you had two armies opposing one another and one of the generals looks across the way and he sees the other general give an order and one battalion wheels off, like like they all turned turned on a dime and they marched promptly off and then the general gave another order and another battalion went off the other direction and uh, and he just saw this thing operating with remarkable discipline. Does this 
general look at that and say, you know, what a bunch of legalists. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't think they mean it in their hearts. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter if they mean it in their hearts. What matters is they're going to clean your clock. Right? Because they are disciplined, focused, and orderly. Christian worship needs to be like that. Now, it needs to be on fire. There needs to be passion. But the passion shouldn't melt everything down into chaos. We are Christians. Right? Not chaos and not the dead, or, not the dead order of uh, figurines on the shelf. And not the chaotic life of spontaneous, who knows, what, you know, the church of what's going to happen next. So... Remember that in and through the church, in and through the church, God is remaking the cosmos. We are the new way of being human in Christ. And that means we are worshiping God here this morning as the seawall that is holding back the raging flood that wants to inundate the world. The, the unbelieving world, the secular world, the pagan world wants everything to go reduced to chaos. And we are the seawall holding that back. But God promised, ironically, ironically with a rainbow, that this was never, ever going to happen again. The world is going to be inundated, certainly, but it's going to be with the knowledge of the Lord, as Isaiah promises in 11.9, and Habakkuk also promises in Habakkuk 2.14. The gods of chaos are going to be cut into pieces, and it is going to be Christian worship that does it. The gods of chaos are going to be defeated. They're going to be cut into pieces. And it's going to be Christian worship that accomplishes this thing. So we do not want an ordered worship service. And this is important to press upon certain personalities. We do not want an ordered worship service because we are tidy-minded people who simply want an ordered worship service. All right, if, if you're the kind of person who, who um, thinks you're going to fix everything with simple order and no work, right? the Proverbs tells us where, the, where you don't have an ox, you can keep the barn clean. Right? You, you can, and you might be the kind of student who thinks that you can get better grades through stacking your papers in a row and, and sharpening your pencils. Right? And you have, line them all up and it's all orderly. Is that we're not talking about that kind of order. We're not wanting an orderly worship service because we are tidy-minded people who like things orderly. We want an ordered worship service because we are putting the world in order. We want an ordered worship service because this is the engine that God uses to straighten the world out, to put the world in order. And at the same time, the chaotic world wants to introduce disorder into our midst. We want God's order and we want to communicate it outward. They want uh, the devil's disorder, and they want to flood us with this. We do, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but rather with the gods of chaos. Ephesians 1, and 23, it says, And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I said that our task is to cut the gods of chaos in pieces, that, that's going to happen, and it's going to be Christian worship that does it. This is, God, this is a place where God says that this is his purpose for the church. He's going to do everything. Everything is going to be subdued to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is going to be brought and placed under his feet. Gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If everything is going to be put under the feet of Jesus Christ, I have a question. Who are the feet of Jesus Christ? You. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You are his body, and his body is going to triumph over all the enemies of God. Now, he's going to do this, he's going to accomplish this through the church. Now, Jesus, when he comes again in the last coming, when Jesus returns, he is going to personally destroy the last enemy, death. But every other Leviathan, every other sea monster, every other dragon, every other thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of God is going to be subdued, and it's going to be subdued through the instrumentality of right worship, worship from the heart evangelical, on-fire, born-again worship that stays within the lines that God has appointed for us. So if we're talking about worship of the God of the Bible, disorderly worship, unstructured worship, froth-and-bubble worship is therefore oxymoronic. Right worship is stable, structured, firm, and formed. It's formed and it is, it's formational. It's formed, and it has an impact on that which it comes into contact with. Think of it this final way. The nations of men, with all their tumults, are a great ocean. This is a figure that Scripture uses of them often. Turbulent waters are the, are the, uh, are the image of the nations of men. Turbulent waters, waters in a storm. The oceans stand in for the turbulent transformations and upheavals among the nations of the world. You can see that in Daniel 7.3. You can see it in Revelation 13.1. The oceans in a storm, the oceans in a storm are, are a picture of the nations raging. And so the difference between structured worship that is God-centered, Christ-honoring, and Bible-believing and worship that is not is the difference between an island in the middle of the ocean, like Hawaii, and a huge raft made out of balsa wood. Now, it doesn't matter how big the raft is. If it's made out of balsa wood, if you're, if you're out there in the middle of the ocean and a storm rises, you're going to have a time. Now, you might have a time if a, if a ty typhoon hits Hawaii. You might, there, there's going to be turbulence. But unless you're... Uh, <laughs> You perhaps remember the, uh, the congressman who, in a hearing, was worried about too many troops stationed on Guam because he was afraid it might tip over. You remember that line of, <laughs> should we really have that many troops because it might tip over? These are our rulers. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have to worry about the storm. See, Hawaii is the tip of a mountain. It's the tip of a mountain that, happens, that sticks out over the water. That you want, we want to be grounded in the transcendental reality that is Christ. That means there are storms. We see the ocean. We see the storm coming. We, we know about the turbulence of our generation. But we are grounded in Christ. Christ is the rock. Christ is the creator. On Christ the solid rock we stand. Christ is the one who defeated all these sea monsters. And this is how he's delivered his people again and again and again and again. So we shouldn't look longingly at the first church of the balsa wood raft. We don't, we don't want to be there. We don't want a light 
we don't want a lightweight response to the, to the gods of chaos. We need a firm foundation. We need a firm footing. We need, to, we need to know and believe that God defeats all his enemies. God defeats all his enemies. Now, he does it using instruments that are not usual. He, he, uh, he tells David to fight Goliath with the slingshot. You know, David, David uh, goes out with an unusual weapon. The, the weapons that we have, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, are not carnal. But, they're, but they're, they're powerful. They're almighty. The weapons that we have are powerful for dealing with the sort of thing that we are confronting today. So, the thing that I want you to go away with, the thing I want you to remember, is that we are confronting the gods of chaos again. We are confronting, in our day, in our time, all the things that are being put, all the absurdities that are being thrown at us, all the things that are just mind-staggeringly stupid, are only stupid in an ordered world that God made. There's nothing that's stupid. In a, in a world of chaos, there's no such thing as stupid. In a world of chaos, everything follows. In the world of chaos, everything goes. But we don't live in that world, and neither will they. All right, why won't they live in that world? Because God has established his church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We are at war with that way of thinking. So everything you see in, uh, everything you see in the evening news Everything you read about in your news aggregator, all the terrible things that are being done, all the absurd things that are being done, all the chaotic, shambolic decisions that are being made, the one in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. He set his king on his holy hill in Zion. He's established his church. Nothing can prevail against the church. Our Father, our gracious God, I pray that you'd watch over us as we seek to be faithful servants, both individually and corporately. I pray that we would be a faithful congregation. I pray that we'd be faithful saints representing you and that congregation. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand what we are up against and how you want us to function and live in a time such as this. Father, as we pray this way, we lift up the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, The 10th commandment prohibits coveting anything that belongs to our neighbor. This is not merely a negative command, it also implies a positive duty. It means that we are required by God to rejoice in what God has given to our neighbors, and refusal to do so is a form of hatred. When you see your neighbor's success, her house, his truck, her body, his wife, their family, their joy, their vacations, do you rejoice? Or is there a subtle, or not so subtle, pit in your stomach? And you might say, well, I don't mind them having those things, but why can't I? But this actually reveals why covetousness is such a hideous evil. It can sometimes be directed at the people who have what you want, but it is always directed at the God who has given. The hatred can be on the human level, and often is, but the hatred is always directed at the God who gives, the God who has distributed his gifts just as he pleases. So this is part of why God invites you back here week after week. You need to be reminded to give thanks for all of it. So first, thank God for what he's given to you. Not vaguely, not rolling your eyes. Make a list. Start reviewing it regularly. What has God given to you? Life, 
lungs that work without you telling them to, a heart that beats every second, hands, two legs. Do you have taste buds? What about eyes? You're a walking testament to God's lavish generosity. And on top of all that, you've been forgiven all your sins and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's what this meal means. It means that God has given himself for you and to you in Christ. And that leads to the second thing. All of God's gifts are fundamentally ways in which God is giving himself to you. But this means that God knows exactly how to give himself to us. Some of it is the same, and some of it's different. Some have greater trials, and some have greater triumphs. But it's the same Christ. It's the same Jesus, the same God, the same salvation given to all those who believe. So as you partake this morning, look down your aisle, glance behind you, look in front of you. What has God given? He has given us himself. He's given us all that we need. And God is good all the time. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. When God called Moses at the burning bush, remember he was instructed to throw it on his rod. And the rod turned into, the Hebrew is tanim. It turned into a dragon of some sort. It's not a little garter snake. Remember Moses is an experienced shepherd. He'd seen a few garter snakes, no doubt. What he ran away from was something more like a dragon. And then what he, the real trick is not throwing it down. <laughs> the real trick is grabbing it by the tail and getting it back in your hand as a rod. And God says, that's what you need to do right there. That's a picture of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a sea dragon. God, um, he was considered a sea dragon ruler of Egypt. And God says, this is what I'm doing with you. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach all of Israel to do. I'm going to teach you to rule over dragons and serpents. Jesus has come. He's the greater Moses. He's the one that set us free. He crushed the head of the serpent. And now he says to you, in your life, there's probably some chaos. There's probably some serpents. There are some dragons. Reach down and grab them by the tail. Sometimes they might bite you back. But Jesus has gone ahead. He's given you the spirit. He's teaching you how to rule this world like the new humanity that you are. So go with his blessing now to do that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his counts upon you and grant you his peace. And amen.